Sunday after second service, we'll be having a camp meeting for those of you who signed up to help and participate. Um, and we'll give you our assignments and kind of break out into different sessions or different groups um, to talk briefly about what your responsibilities will be for this year's camp. So that's uh, this Sunday right after second service. We'll try to meet quickly and get you off to lunch. All right, Matthew 27. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Now we, Bo says, what are we, what are we learning about uh, tonight? And like, so you go, don't we do that on Easter? Isn't that when we do that? So well, we can teach this anytime, little boy, you know. Um, and it's important. I, I was thinking about some of the background that I have um, that I learned along the way uh, as being a believer and some of the basics of um, why I believe what I believe, why I teach what I teach, not, not based off of because someone told me to believe it, but because it's rational and it makes sense outside of Scripture. And um, this is one of those things. Um, when we go through prophecy, when you go through this chapter, there are so many prophecies being fulfilled, um, so many things that come together from Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, different sections of Scripture that were written hundreds of years before Christ, hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented as a, as a way of uh, the death penalty, um, these are some of the things we grab onto and understand, wow, um, this is not that we need to prove the Bible, but we definitely don't want to go to someone and tell them, I'm a Christian because someone told me to believe in Christianity. Okay, We want to have some basic sound things to hold on to to give them for our reason um, for trusting this scripture um, versus all the other things that the world says is scripture. Um, some say that Islam is the way and that um, the, the, their book is, is the, the truth, you know. Um, and it's important for us to know why we believe what we believe. And so as we go through this, we'll see several prophecies that are amazing and very detailed and, and help us. Now, why is this first break important, these first two verses? Well, we have already had the trial with the high priest last week. And they found Jesus guilty. Now it was through um, some false allegations and, and, and things made against him. And they couldn't even find two witnesses that could agree on the matter. So what is this? Why would you need to plot to put him to death after we've already had our trial and found him guilty? Why would we need to do that? Except for the Jewish people at this time could not put anybody to death. They were under the Roman yoke. They were under the authority of Rome. They were allowed to govern themselves within limitations, you know, certain things they could do. But when it came to the death penalty, Rome would step in and say, you don't have that authorization. You can't do that. Uh, you guys are all under our umbrella. And as, you know, pseudo-Roman citizens, we have that say. And it was very difficult, but very um, difficult for the Jewish people, difficult for the religious rulers, especially um, since it had never happened before. And, and, and so my, my point is, um, there's a scripture, it's in uh, Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, way, way, way long ago, way back in the first book, where Jacob has brought his boys in to pronounce a blessing upon his kids. And one of the blessings was actually prophetic about Judah. And it says this, the scepter, the rule, shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until 
Shiloh comes, until the Messiah comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. When Rome came in and removed the death penalty, which is the symbol, and actually the, it's amazing how that's such a controversial subject, the death penalty, and, I, and you know why it is as we go through these things. Um, when they took the death penalty power away from the Jewish people, that was the end of their government. That was the end of their ruling over themselves. That was the scepter being removed from them. They were allowed, like uh, children, to do what they wanted to do. Has anybody, was everybody ever a part of the, the, uh, um, the, the, not the school board, the, the, the student council in your high school or something, or student council even in, in college or whatever? You were given a certain amount of authority, but there was no, by no means you couldn't really enact all the things that you really wanted to enact, okay? And some of you don't know what I'm talking about, but I was on student council, and, um, you know, some of the things you tried to get past, it's like the, the teachers would just look at you and say, yeah, no, we're not doing that. We're not putting that in the vending machines or whatever, you know, it's like, no, it's not happening. So you were allowed to practice. You were allowed to pretend it was make-believe, you know, but you're never really allowed to govern, and that's what's happened to the nation of Israel. Now, here's the thing. That prophecy from Genesis 49.10, everybody was waiting for Shiloh. And if the scepter is removed, as far as they were concerned, then there is no Messiah. He didn't come. That prophecy has passed. Um, If Jesus isn't the Messiah, if he wasn't the Messiah, then there is no Messiah coming. It was, they would, they tore their clothes. They sackcloth and ashes in the streets when this took place from Rome applying this to the people of Jerusalem, to the people of Israel. You are no longer in charge of yourself. And so the scepter at that point, this prophecy, Genesis 49.10, had been fulfilled at that point. And if Jesus isn't Shiloh, then there is no Shiloh. But of course there is. And so even as Matthew writes this down, it says, now we go to ask permission from Pilate, the governor, to actually enact and put this Jesus to death because we don't have the scepter anymore. This is faith. This is important. This is um, building of explaining to people and helping people start from zero and build them into the relationship with Jesus Christ. We have to have that. We have to have that knowledge now. Sometimes we'll start ministering to people with John 3.16. And for people that... In America, that's easy, or it used to be anyway, where you could start at John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave, God who? The world will say to us now. Well, the, the God of the Bible, what's the Bible? We need to get there. <laughs> As believers, we need to know why we even point people to this book. Why, when we look around at this world, that it only makes sense that If this world exists, and to us there's evidence of design, then by the very fact that there's a design and there is a schematic and there is a reproduction that takes place automatically, that we can take a cell and it automatically knows and has all the DNA for the plant, for the person, for the animal, for whatever it may be, and begins to build that exact replica of where it came from, All these things are evidence that there is then a designer. If there's a designer, he has to be perfect. Has to be perfect. If there's any flaw or any fault in the designer, 
then the designer will eventually die and all of its designs with it. Okay, we have to get there and understand these things. And so these things that we're learning here, God has carefully crafted and put into his word so that everything that pertains to life and godliness is found in the knowledge of Jesus. We have that. We have to go beyond just spouting off platitudes to people about Christianity. Oh, trust the Lord. Trust him with what? Why would I trust him? What does it mean to trust him? How do I do that? Explain. We need to go further than just these simple, cheap, I think, lazy, maybe, is a better way to put it. We have to be careful that we understand what we believe and know it. Um, And not only for them, for ourselves. I challenge everything I read. I challenge everything. And I want to know what it means and why do I have to believe that? Okay, so we're not supposed to vaccinate. Many Christians are telling me. I want to know why you say that. Because I just think it's a dangerous thing. Why do you know that? Now, I, I'm all for that. I'm in that camp. I'm in that category in some cases. I'm, I'm like, I don't, we're not going to get the vaccine. That's just a personal choice for our family. It's a liberty issue. There's a lot of issues there. But I want to be able to explain to people why I'm not going to do that. Not just spout it off because I saw it on Newsmax or because I saw it on Fox or because I saw it someplace else. We have an obligation as human beings who are created in the image of God with brains to know. Well, I'm not a virologist. Figure it out. Google it. Research it. Go beyond, you know. Now, who I liked when I was reading, and this is, I know it's a little bit of a, a side trail, but I, I, I get a little nervous the way we're, um, the way I see arguments and, and discussions and things going with Christians. We look really dumb sometimes, and that doesn't need to be that way. We don't have to be that way. We can research and know. I, I the, the doctor, the physician that did a wonderful job, I don't agree with everything he said, but did a wonderful job um, testifying before Congress. And he's, yeah, he was a little arrogant, very prideful, talked about himself most of the time. I get that. I understand that. And if you don't know, you can look it up and see who it is. But he had some very solid medical reasoning behind what he was saying. And that's what I grab onto. Everybody's arrogant. Everybody's got pride. Everybody's got hidden things about themselves that they have to that you kind of have to look past, you know, uh, to get to it. But he, he before the virus hit, he was a, a, a well-respected physician with more letters behind his name and more uh, virology and, and all these things, and the head of Texas, uh, you know, uh, AMA and, 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 and a part of the AMA, and, and, and so many, many things. And so I could, I could listen to what he had to say, and then take other things also that I looked up from medical journals and things like that. And you can begin to build a solid rationale for why you have decided not to. Not just because you think it's the mark of the beast. That's the most ridiculous argument we could give anybody as Christians to the people around us. I think it's the mark of the beast. First of all, it's not. It's not. But second of all, why would you say something like that and, you're, and, and you just lost the person? You just lost them into superstition, black cats, don't walk under ladders, and so on. We need to be better than that as far as Christians go, as far as our Christianity goes. And the scriptures help us do that. Um, The reason they can't kill him because they've decided to kill him is because the scepter's been removed from them, the power's been removed, which shows 
to Genesis 49.10 and helps us to understand that this is the fulfillment of prophecy. And God has made sure that that time frame has stopped. This is very important two verses, because if the scepter has been removed, you can't have a Messiah past this point. The fact that the Jewish people are waiting for their true Messiah is absolutely futile, because the time frame has stopped. Jesus stopped it right there. The scepter's been removed. Shiloh either came or he didn't. Either it's a myth, or he came and Jesus was him. It stopped. Super important for us to know these things. And so they've got to go to Pontius Pilate and beg for him to kill them and ask him. Verse 3, long chapter. We'll see how far we get, right? Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. It's a tough spot to be in, but Judas put himself in that position. It's interesting, their response. So? I mean, that's the, that's the, the two-letter word that could have been written here. I've betrayed innocent blood. I don't want this money. So? Too late. How do you go back and undo that? How do you undo the kiss? How do you undo bringing us out with clubs and torches to go find the guy that's hiding in there? I mean, honestly, they didn't even need Judah. Judah puts himself in a bizarre position, as far as I'm concerned, of getting money to go show them where Jesus was. And what he's really doing is showing where they could um, they could do a covert arrest and bring him in and get things going in the middle of the night. And so when people woke up in the morning, all of a sudden... I mean, we're three steps into this trial. We are so far into this, and whispers are already being made, and people have already been convinced that he's really not who he said he was, and all of a sudden, when people wake up full of faith, lose their faith immediately because the world around them has changed drastically overnight. And so he gets paid 30 pieces of silver for this, silver for this and decides to go back. I, 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 I want to go back. You can't. You cannot undo, Judas, what you've just done. And I think there's been a lot of people who have sinned and wishes desperately they could go back and undo it. I think that's one of the first parts of coming to repentance or maybe just getting caught. I don't know which. Just that immediate regret and immediate, no, 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 almost denial. No, 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 no. I cannot believe I find myself here. How did I get myself in this position? How did this happen? This is not who I am. Where, what has happened here? And that's Judas is right here, right now. He's at that place. He was warned several times. I mean, he's at the table with Jesus the night he goes to betray him. And Jesus tells everybody, somebody at the table is going to betray me. And Judas knows it's him. And yet he kind of goes along with everybody else as they go around the table saying, is it I? Is it I? Judas doesn't want to be the only one not saying, is it I? Hello, you may as well rave a flag. It's me. Is, is it I? And he looks at him and says, you said it. And you know there was a connection there. You know that Judas was like, he knows. Now, none of the other guys picked up on it. They didn't think anything of it. They actually thought that when he said that to him and he left the room, that he's actually going out to do something really special for Jesus. We read that last week. Hmm. James warns us in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, 
Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. You see how great a forest uh, a little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire, the world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our bodies, our members, that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. I mean, that's a really strong statement for someone to make and to write down, James, to write that down. He's just talking about our words. Oh, they're dangerous. And you cannot undo them. Arguments that you have with people, and if you lose your temper in that argument, you will say things that you wish you'd never said, and many of you know what I'm talking about and have been there. And you wish you could pull that word back. You wish you could unsay it, hit delete, unsend, whatever you might, whatever. And you know you can't, and you have scorched earth with your words. Hmm. That's where, that's where he is right now. That's where Judas is right now. And James warns us about that in our own walk with the Lord. As Christians, man, we've got to get a hold. It's better just to clam up. Are you mad? Mm, 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 mm. Well, just say something. Tell me what's going on. I need to think this through. I need to be quiet for a while. I need to be left alone for a minute. I need to let God get control of me right now. I need the Holy Spirit right now because my flesh is going berserk and my tongue is ready. That's one of the greatest things we can do. And it is our flesh. We do war with our flesh. It is always ready to blow up and ruin people's lives. It is exactly the way James described it. It is set on fire by hell. And if we let loose of that flame out of our mouth, we will scorch people. And it is very difficult to bring them back to a place of trust, to a place of love, to a place of um, comfort around you. Many, many marriages have been ruined from this. Many, many just general relationships have been ruined by this. We need to take heed to what James says. It is a thing set on fire by hell. Hmm. And so I best keep it between my teeth for a long time before I even start to say anything. And it best be biblical. Righteous indignation is fine, but make sure it's righteous and not just ourselves. Anyway, Judas is beside himself to the point where he hangs himself and kills himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, this is rich. It is not lawful to put them into the treasury like murder was, you know, we could kill an innocent man, but, and that's amazing how the legalist thinks they have justified it in their mind somehow, some way that the ends justify the means. This guy is just, he's causing a tumult among the city and among believers. We need to get people back to synagogue like they used to, back to the temple like they used to, regardless of whether he's healing people and feeding people and all that, raising people from the dead stuff. I mean, they rationalize all this, but we need to kill him and get rid of him for the good of the people and for our good. To the point where they come up with this money and they're looking at this 30 pieces of silver and they're, they're, mor- they're morally stuck. What do we do with this money? It's blood money. That wouldn't be legal for us to put it back in the coffers. You guys are so far beyond legal. We don't want to put it back in the treasury because it's the price of blood. And they consulted together. And bought with them, with them these pieces of silver, the potter's field, to bury strangers in. 
The potter's field is where when you you know you ruin a pot or whatever and you you go out and you throw it and you break it, right? And that's just a it's a pretty much a worthless field. You can't do much with it after that. But you could bury people there. Strangers, people you don't know where to put. It's the poor man's cemetery basically. So, let's get a let's hey, we could put some poor people there. So we can use it for good somehow some way. It can benefit us. So they do. They buy the potter's field for 30 pieces of silver. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. And that scripture is actually in Zechariah chapter 11, verse 12. Does that bother anybody? Matthew says, and that's just what they said in Jeremiah, and he's wrong. It's not in Jeremiah. It's in Zechariah. Or Zechariah. I keep saying Zechariah. Zechariah. Let me read it to you. Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 through 13. Then I said to them, if it is agreeable to me to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver, and the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. That princely price they set on me, so I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them in the house of the Lord for the potter. That's pretty descriptive, written hundreds of years before Christ and before this event. It's amazing prophecy. But Matthew put it in the wrong spot. Now, I don't know if that bothers you or not. Some non-believers will be like, see, the Bible is not completely accurate. It's got mistakes in it. It's got faults. Well, no, because that's exactly what Matthew thought. And he wrote it down. What's, what's showing here for me is that Matthew misquoted it. Matthew put it in the wrong spot. He put it in Jeremiah instead of Zechariah. He knew it was in one of the prophets. Now, I, I want you to be encouraged by that and not discouraged by that. Some people say, well, the Bible, oh, my, my whole faith is shaken by this. Well, it shouldn't be. The Bible is accurately writing. Matthew really did write that. It's exactly what he thought. I really think it's in Jeremiah the prophet, but it's not. That's okay. And it's okay when you mess things up and you misquote things. In Corinthians, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And everybody's going, I don't think that's in Corinthians. You know? You know? I remember when our former president said, In 2 Corinthians, and everybody's like, That's not what Christians say. What do we say? We say 2 Corinthians. He said 2 Corinthians because that's what it said in the teleprompter, and that's the verse they put up for him to read, or that's the verse that he thought. That's how he read it, 2 Corinthians. That's What, what do you mean? It says a 2 in Corinthians. I read it 2 Corinthians. Yeah, but if you're truly, you know, I mean, if you go to Bible study a lot, you know it's 2 Corinthians. You're not supposed to say it like that. So what? I mean, you know, I'm encouraged that Matthew gets it wrong here and, and says it's in Jeremiah, and it's actually in Zechariah. That's That means he... First of all, he probably doesn't have scriptures. He doesn't have a Bible. He doesn't have an Old Testament that he hangs around his belt all the time. He goes to synagogue every Saturday, and they open up the scrolls because it's behind. If you've ever been to a synagogue, you should go sometime. It's really neat. They'll make you wear a yarmulke, but that's okay. You put it on uh, for the guys. And then um, and the guy's got to sit on one side, and the girl's sit on the other side. It's really interesting, but you should go. And then behind the uh, the rabbi... Um, there's a cloth, a, a big thing, a carton kind of thing. And behind that, they saw, there's the big scrolls. And they bring out the scrolls, and they set it down, and they roll it out, and they take their little silver pointer, and they, and, they, and they go along and they read to you. 
You know? So everything in his entire life that he's ever known, Matthew the tax collector, is he's being read to. He doesn't sit down necessarily and read the scrolls, and so he got it wrong. That's okay. It's okay when you misquote things. Well, I thought it was there. You don't know the, even the address. You don't even know the chapter and the verse. No, but I understand the heart. I can't believe that he remembered that this prophecy was even in there. Good for you. He was listening. He was listening to the heart of the message. And so he writes that down. And so it was. That's a really detailed prophecy. Verse 11. Now, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? I mean, you've got to look at this. Jesus is not looking his best right now. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, it is as you say. Same thing he said to Judas. Yeah. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not a word so that the governor marveled greatly. What do you do about false allegations? How do you disprove a negative? I mean, how do you... You're, he did this. I mean, all he can say is, no, I didn't. But he doesn't even say that. He just doesn't answer a word, which we take note of, I think. I mean, the governor did for sure. He marveled greatly. They are laying out a rap sheet or a, 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 the charges against Jesus and the governor's listening to all these things that he says he does. He's looking at this guy saying, you're hearing all this, right? He's not even shaking his head. So that's not, I can't believe they're saying that. That's not true. That's not how it went down. No, you guys know that's, he's not doing any of the things that we would normally do. We don't want people to think wrong of us. We don't want people to misunderstand us. We want to explain. We want to, he just lets it sit. Why? Well, Isaiah 53, 7 Another prophecy, the whole chapter is worthy of being read, but we don't have time for that tonight. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Now, he is not being quiet in Matthew to fulfill the prophecy. The prophecy is saying Jesus is letting his reputation, the Messiah will let his reputation be maligned. Jesus is fulfilling that by letting his reputation be from light. Sometimes we get the prophecies and we say, oh, he's being quiet because the prophecy told him to be quiet. No, no, no. The prophecy is looking forward to what the Messiah will do. And the writer of the prophecy says, he's not saying a word. He didn't even open his mouth the whole time. He's seeing what's happening. Jesus is letting God let them malign him. We have several examples of that. Joseph. Joseph is a perfect example of that. In, in, in the entire story of Joseph, we never hear about any sin that he ever commits. Certainly he did. But the Bible never shows us anything. It only shows us being this good kid, maybe sharing a little too much about it. We try to find something, right? We probably shouldn't have told everybody about his dreams. And if you don't know the story, he told the dreams about how everybody's going to bow down to me one day. God, God showed me in a dream. And the brother's like, we ain't bowing down to you, you know. And the mom and dad were like, yeah, take it easy, take it easy. And he says, oh, yeah. And then I had another dream, and you guys all bowed down to me, and mom and dad bowed down to me. And that's when dad was like, you know what, we're not bowing down to you. And he got upset. 
And so we like to make fun of Joseph a little bit, say, man, probably better keep those dreams to yourself and just let them be fulfilled and not have to tell everybody about it all the time. But it wasn't sin. He never sins. He doesn't do anything wrong except try to do the right thing, and that got him in trouble with his brothers, so his brothers throw him in a pit. Wrongly accused. Completely not fair. And then after the pit, he gets taken to Egypt. They sell him off, and he goes to Egypt, and he's uh, in the house of Potiphar. So kind of a pretty important role as he's over Potiphar's house. and pretty important. But then the mistress wants him, and he declines and is trying to be upright and do the right thing. And when people do the right thing, they get rewarded, right? No. Her false accusation against him causes him to have to flee and leave, gets him arrested and throws into prison. No way to defend himself. His reputation is completely ruined. And yet, even in prison, he continues to do the right thing until he's in charge of the prison, basically. Interpreting dreams for guys, helping guys out, and they forget about him. Until finally the guy goes, oh, King, you had a dream? There was a guy I was supposed to tell you about? I was supposed to tell you about this guy. I totally forgot. It was like a year ago. Anyway, he gave me this interpretation. He'll help you. He gets taken out of a prison cell to interpret the dream, and he gets to be placed number two in Egypt. Joseph is a guy who doesn't do anything wrong, doesn't deserve the allegations, is without sin as far as the allegations go, as far as the scriptures tell us, and yet God used the destruction of his reputation several times in his life to put him into a position where he could be used by God for his family later on that were disgusted by his relationship with God and his dreams that he was getting. When my or your reputation is maligned, my tendency and our tendency is to defend ourselves, but maybe that's not the best thing and maybe that's not what God wants. Maybe God wants us to be brought low. Maybe he wants us taken out to be raised up at a different time. Another one is Job. Now, we know from the end of Job that God had some things he wanted to teach Job, but Job didn't do anything wrong. He just got chosen. He was a righteous man. His wife left him. He lost everything. Every one of his friends that were trying to help him through this accused him of having some kind of secret sin. Uh, This must be happening for some reason. Isn't that where we are in our society right now? There have been enough allegations about you that there must be something true about it. And we as Christians have to be very careful we don't jump on that. I've seen that happen. We hope it's true. Oh, that allegation. I have no evidence. I have no proof. But enough people have said enough things about him. He's got to be dirty somehow, some way. And so, oh, and because we don't like the guy, we hope for sure. We all oh, hope it's true. Oh, we got to do better than that. We got to be careful. David didn't do anything but be obedient to God, took out warriors when uh, Goliath, when nobody else would take him out, and yet was just hated by the new king for some reason. The new, the, Saul just hated him with no reason except personal jelly. And then finally, Jesus. Jesus is our example that we're reading here. Someone who allowed his reputation to be ruined for the ultimate good, for the purposes that God had placed for him. And I don't know what those are in my life. There's a lot of false... Does anybody remember Richard Jewell? Richard Jewell. Some of you younger folks don't know. 1996 Summer Olympic Games. Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia. Security guard. 
overweight mall cop walking around, found a bag full of three pipe bombs, got everybody out of there as fast as he could. I think one lady died out of all the people that were surrounding these pipe bombs. Told, get out of here, get out of here. And the FBI later on accused him of being the one to bring the pipe bombs to there so that he could get glory for exposing the bomb thing and actually wanted to charge him with it. He was never charged. But for 80 days he dealt with, and that is almost three full months of the media and the world thinking he was the guy that planted the bombs so that he could bring himself glory. And in the process of that, screwed up, let one of the ladies die. Nobody was supposed to, I mean, this all went through. And then later on they found out, oh, wait, no, sorry. It was, there was a real bomber. He actually did do his job. He was actually a mall cop, probably getting paid 15 bucks an hour to walk around and actually took the time to look at an empty bag or a bag sitting there unattended, found the pipe, but did, his, did what he was supposed to do. But his reputation was absolutely destroyed. I mean, he's vindicated for sure. Thank goodness. But he went through 80 days of that. It's sad. First of all, we don't want to be a part of that. As Christians, you never want to be a part of that. I always, we always need to be the ones that are, look, I need some evidence. Just because you say it or just because a couple people say it, we need to find out the truth about this. I can't just hop on because they're on the red team and I'm on the blue team or vice versa. We need to be better than that. So, now Jesus stood before the governor and was accused of all these things and didn't open his mouth. Verse 15, now at the feast of the governor, was he was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. You can read about him. But he was a people's guy. You know, he was a, he was a murderer. But he was a murderer for a good reason. He was he was trying to overthrow Rome, and you know he's kind of what not really. I mean, he was more up for himself, more like just a just a bad dude. Well, they had Barabbas there, and therefore, when they gathered together, Pilate said to them, "Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who's who's called the Christ?" For he knew that they had handled handed him over because of envy. I underlined that because we. He got it. The worldly guy understood where this was coming from. He was not duped by these religious rulers. He could see their envy in their eye. He could see why these allegations were being made. He's looking at Jesus saying, you are innocent. I can just tell. I've been in this position before. But while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that just man. For I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to him, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all said to him, let him be crucified. We want the death penalty. And the governor said, why? <laughs> what evil has he, done? has he done? And they cried out all the more because that's when you do. I don't know why. I just know he needs to die. That's all I know. Louder gets it accomplished. And because of the tumult, it says, when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that the, a tumult was rising, and that's important. Uh, Pontius Pilate is the third guy in charge of this place. 
And there have been riots because of people like Barabbas and all these things. And if there's anything Rome wanted more than anything was just keep the people quiet. Placate them. But keep them so I just know that that's just what. And so his, he's the third guy. And the other two guys were replaced because tumults kept rising up. There's so many tumults. We don't use that word a lot, but protesters, rioters, all these things. Just keep them quiet, you know. He's willing to do the unthinkable. You guys, what do you guys want just to be quiet? I cannot, I can't get fired. And f- being fired in Rome was like not just you got to find another job, you'd die. You got to kill Jesus to keep us quiet. Okay. He took the water and he washed his hands in front of the multitude, before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And that doesn't alleviate him of the responsibility in eternity's eyes. But he thought that helped. This is on you. I'm only killing him because you want me to kill him. And for a Roman who's an unbeliever, he doesn't really follow the Lord, that for him was good enough. And all the people answered and said in the most ironic verse in Scripture, Jesus' blood be on us and on our children. Is that not perfect? That's not what they mean. They mean, fine, we'll take responsibility for the murder of Jesus Christ. And yet that's exactly what every one of us in this room have asked of God. We pray that Jesus' blood washes us and cleanses us from the sin. And they don't even know it, but they're prophesying of what he will do for the world. Then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus to the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, like a little scepter. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head, just kind of driving those thorns deeper into his scalp. And they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 2 through 5, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of the dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrow, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. Of course, the prophet trying to show us that everything that he went through was truly what we deserved, but he took everything in place of us. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon, By name, him they compelled to bear his cross, Jesus' cross. When they come to the place called Golgotha, that is to say the place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, and that's sort of uh, an anesthesia, something to take away the pain. And when he tasted it, he would not drink it. He had to take the full pain. He had to take all of it. I don't want to dull any of my senses. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. And you know that Matthew is into this, right? He's trying to prove a point. 
This was all told beforehand. What is happening in front of us right now with Jesus is the fulfillment of what was going to happen to Messiah. And the prophecy was this, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 was written 500 years prior to crucifixion being invented, and you should read it. Verses 16 through 18. In fact, Psalm 22 actually begins with um, what we're about to read in verse 46. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why 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 hast thou forsaken me? Which many people feel like, that's him, finally breaking. Finally letting loose of the delusion that he's actually the son of God. He's saying, God, I thought I was doing your work. I, I thought I was on your team. Why are you letting this happen to me? And that's not what he's doing. He's actually pointing out that everybody around him should be reading Psalm 22, the prophecy, because it's being fulfilled right in their eyes, right in front of them. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And they put up over his head the accusation written, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and the other on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. And that was their opinion. That's how he should do it. Now he will get up three days from now. He will fulfill his prophecy of destroying the temple and rising in three days, but it's not what they think. Likewise, the chief priests also mocked with the scribes and the elders saying, he saved others himself. He cannot save. Just kind of driving it home. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. No. They wouldn't have. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Now, they are saying what Jesus has been saying, but what many of the, many of the critics of Scripture or many of the critics of Jesus and his being divine, him being God come in the flesh, say, no, no, he's, he never claimed to be God. Well, Everybody at the time understood what he was saying. And this is proving the point that no matter what they think they're reading, these people that don't think Jesus claimed to be God, well, they're reading this and trying to find everybody else that heard him knew exactly what he was saying. And they fulfill that right here. And they they proclaim that and, and clarify that in case we got some, and we can be arrogant sometimes as we read these things and think that we know better than the actual people sitting there in front of Jesus, you know, at the time. And just so God is a, he, he, he testifies of himself. He, he proves himself. He does this here. Matthew writes this down. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now. If he will have him for, he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now we know from another gospel that one of them, as they're getting closer to death, looks over at him and says, please remember me when you come into your glory. One of them gets saved. Now, the other one doesn't. The other one just continues to mock or continues to die a slow death and goes into eternity without Christ. But the other one does. Both witnessing, both started off in the same place of reviling him, but one coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And now if Jesus is ministering to that group and only 50% get saved, please be encouraged by that. When you share the gospel with people and they reject it, it isn't that you did it wrong. It's that they didn't receive it, like the thief right next to Christ. Continue to share that. People will not accept Christ because they don't want to accept Christ. But those who are ripe for the harvest, those who are ready, will receive the word of God that you share with them. Be encouraged by that. 
Now, from the sixth hour, which is noon, until the ninth hour, which is three o'clock in the afternoon, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22, verse 1. Some of those who stood there when he called or when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked. And the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Okay? Are you getting this? I actually had someone at one point say, There's no, there was no earthquake. Jesus, there was a... It's in Matthew. They like had read one gospel and hadn't read all of them. This is huge. When Jesus dies on the cross and yields up his spirit, over at the temple, this veil that's 18 inches thick that's been placed there to separate people from the holy of holy places. And there, in the holy, even the high priest couldn't really do anything. He'd stay on that side. It was a barrier. There was no way to get ripped from top to bottom, not from bottom to top, from top to bottom. There's this huge earthquake that takes place. And not just the tombs rolled open and some bodies fell out or whatever. They were raised from the dead. And they're walking around and were witnessed by people. People said, there's, that's grandma. <sighs> Grandma's like, I mean, this is a big deal. We kind of think of this, oh, well, you said, no, no, no. They were witnesses and people were getting up from the grave. And I don't know, here's the thing. You got to, Jesus walks around the earth for a long time. When he gets up in three days, They don't all go back into their grave like a groundhog or something like that. They stay out the entire time until he ascends into heaven because he's the first one to go to heaven. And that's when these folks get to go with him. So they're walking around for a month with him. So, and this is documented. that's, That's the part that, that unbelievers should focus on right here. Let's disprove the fact that there were people that were dead. I'm not going to call them zombies. I know you want me to call them zombies. I'm not going to call them that. Because they're fully restored and walking around. They're not like stumbling around like you've seen in the movies. They're up. Like Jesus is up. And they're like, Grandma looks really good. There they are for a long time walking around with him. You can see why they changed the entire calendar to focus around this event, can't you? We, we, we count backwards all the way up to Jesus, and then we count forwards after Jesus. There's a reason. It's a big deal. We read it. They, the world talks about it like, well, he's one of many great teachers. He's one of, okay, no. Okay, when Confucius died, how many people got out of the grave and were walking around for a month, you know? How many earthquakes took place? How many of these things said, Muhammad, tell me all about that. Mm Mm-mm. It's a huge deal. When, When we trust in Jesus Christ as Christians, I want us to stand firmly. I mean, solidly. Oh, no, 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 no. I think you misunderstand. Let me explain to you Christianity to you. Earthquakes, people walking around dead. I mean, 
it's not like anything else. It's not one of 10 choices. This has never, ever happened. And we need to walk like that. We should have the most confidence. We should understand the most. We should be screaming at the top of our lungs with just, no, Jesus is absolutely the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. To know that. Now, this veil. I'm a little long. That's all right. In Hebrews, several times, I'm not going to read all of them to you. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 is probably the most... In, uh, mm, let me see. What's the most important one? Talking about this veil... I'm going to give you the high points. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. The writer here is working his way up to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 21. Talking about the veil, reminding him of the veil, the reason for the veil, the separation that took place. It says here in Hebrews chapter 10, remember the ripping from top to bottom here in Matthew. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. The writer of Hebrews understands that ripping of the veil was not just symbolic. It was actually, he made the way, the way the, the veil that kept us from going to God, which is our unrighteousness and his righteousness, what keeps us there has now been removed. There is no more veil. There is no more barrier because now we go through Christ to get to God and we can boldly come to that throne of grace and mercy in time of need. And that's one of the other scriptures there in Hebrews. Because of what Christ did, the barrier that had to be placed because we would explode and ignite into flames being in the presence of God is now removed. And now we can come through Christ and come to our Father for the first time. Ever. And the only way we can go is through the, is through the blood of Jesus, is through the flesh and through the body, the broken body of Christ. So, When all this took place, verse 54, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. They were freaked out. Roman soldiers don't get freaked out by stuff very often, but when you see grandma walking around, earthquakes taking place, darkness that shouldn't be darkness, why are we dark from noon to three o'clock in the afternoon in the desert? They knew this is God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Joseph, and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now, when the evening had come, there was a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in the new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rocks. It was probably his own place that he had made for himself when he died. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary. There are a lot of Marys sitting opposite the tomb. Now they're getting ready because they're going to prepare and come back three days later to go ahead and embalm him because they didn't have time to do it. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests, the Pharisees, gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive, um, 
that he said he was going to, after three days, he's going to rise. Therefore, I command that the tomb, therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by uh, at night, steal him away, and say to the people he has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. We definitely want him staying in the... Now, why are they saying this? Probably truly because he said this. But also, we have all these dead people walking around. They've got to be terrified. Why would they be talking about the resurrection? Why would they? I mean, it isn't very hard to guard a tomb and make sure that the disciples stay. You can go arrest them too. No, they're watching all these dead people that were dead anyway, walking around, and they're thinking, we cannot let this guy get out. Pilate said to him, you have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting a guard. And we'll finish up next week with, obviously, we know the story. But they're actually going to have to convince these soldiers who actually witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ to lie and to say that the disciples stole the body. Okay? It's a big deal. Thank you for staying late. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for sharing with us and putting this uh, on Matthew's heart to write. Um, Help us to know our faith, to believe so strongly, to understand so deeply that we can reasonably, quietly explain our faith to people. That we don't have to just get louder to make them believe or to repeat over and over again things, but we actually can answer questions. And to help them come to understand. Many of them won't want to understand. They give the questions because they just want to stump us and they just want to trip us up and they just want us to feel or look foolish. But Lord, as we give an answer for the reason which lies for the for the reason for the hope which lies within us, Lord, they begin to feel that. Now they may get defensive or they may be broken. We pray for them to be broken. That they would let your blood wash over them to cleanse them from all unrighteousness, from all their sins, to receive that forgiveness because all that we read tonight was from love. Him keeping his mouth shut, him allowing them to beat him, him going to the cross, him yielding up his soul, him actually drinking the cup that he asked to be removed from his life, and yet if there was no other way, he would drink it, and he drank it. And so we thank you for that tonight personally, that you drank that cup of wrath, God. Thank you, Jesus, for doing that for us. Lord, for those in the room tonight that have never made you their Lord and Savior, but tonight have been touched by your Holy Spirit, because your word does that. You create a tumult. You stir. Anywhere you were, Jesus, anywhere your word was shared, there was a stir. For those who were stirred tonight, God, they want to yield themselves over to you tonight. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for what we've just read tonight. Thank you for the evidence, the proof, the prophecy. Thank you for the love that was demonstrated as your son, Jesus, went to the cross and died for my sins and took the beatings and the pain and the humiliation that I deserved. He took it upon himself in place of me so that I can be saved. I received that salvation tonight. I thank you for the forgiveness of all my sins, and I give you my life. I trust in Jesus tonight because of what I've read. Because of your Holy Spirit in my heart, I'm born again. I'm new. And so, Lord, take my life and let it be consecrated unto you. Let it be you that I live for now. 
You are worthy of everything I have, that my mouth wouldn't be used to burn and to hurt, but would be used to bring life and to tell people about you and what you've done. So fill me with your Holy Spirit that I might be equipped and gifted for all the ministry you have for me, Lord, that I would live the rest of my life serving you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a good night, guys. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you. Otherwise, um, otherwise have a good week.